Welcome to the podcast for the NIH seed-funded R25 Education Grant, Discovering the Value of Imaging, administered by the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. Hi, everyone again. Today, we'll be covering Section 5, General Imaging Papers. So where are we? Last week, we reviewed how researchers are using electronic health records and clinical data for multiple applications, and specifically talked a little bit about how they're using deep learning to, for different uh, prediction problems. And today, we finally dip our toe a little bit into imaging. I do apologize, uh, as I did make an error. Uh, the fourth paper that we read was actually a natural language processing paper, and we moved that one uh, to a later section. And today, we're just going to focus on uh, primarily three papers. So what did we read? Uh, the first paper was by STV and colleagues, dermatology, dermatologist level uh, classification of skin cancer with deep neural networks. Um, then Gulshan et al., uh, development and Validation of a Deep Learning Algorithm for Detection of Diabetic Retinopathy in Retinal Fundus Photographs. And finally, Raj Prakar et al., uh, Chest X-Net Radiology Level Pneumonia Detection on Chest X-Rays with Deep Learning. So why did they get these papers? Well, first, um, these the first two papers were just published in really, really uh, high-profile places, uh, specifically Nature and JAMA. Uh, and sort of got a lot of attention when they were published. And um, I actually read them uh, almost uh, either the day of or two days after they were published. So there's something that sort of ended, uh, that appeared on my radar pretty quickly. Um, and the second was uh, this chest X night paper. Um, you know, chest X rays being one of the most basic uh, things that we learn in medical school, and, and I thought it'd be a great place to start uh, in terms of studying uh, radiology and studying deep learning and radiology as, a, as an example of, of where uh, this technology could go. And then finally, um, I chose these papers to really continue to build your toolbox around language uh, and machine learning and deep learning and sort of go from there. So the first paper I wanted to start with was the uh, dermatology paper. Dermatologist level, dermatologist level classification of skin cancer with deep neural networks. Um, so this was a pretty exciting paper uh, when I first met it. And one of the questions I wanted to start off with and to have you think as I talk through this is, uh, you know, what would you do if you were diagnosed? Uh, and would you want a system like this running? And, you know, the nice thing about these papers, and especially the first two I read, is, you know, they really tried hard to compare to humans. And at the end of the day, you know, at least you know, lack of having a true standard, um, you know, that's sort of one of the core standards that we use um, right now. So what's interesting about this paper, and I'll just name a couple concepts and things that, that I thought was interesting. The first is this is an end-to-end -end application. Um, so it literally just ingests raw pixel data uh, to do the classification. And that's really one of the interesting things about you know, deep learning as an architecture is that you, know, you don't have to do all of these. And as, as I've mentioned in the past, you don't have to you know, try to do segmentation or try to identify you know, lines or um, things, along, things like that. I mean, you literally just give it the raw pixel data and it'll learn all these things on its own. Um, and so that's really, really fascinating. And it's in line where machine learning is going. Um, you know, when we do speech to text types of translation, nowadays they just do it completely end to end in the sense that the speech is just given the raw waveforms and the text or the speech that's generated or the, the, the translations or the text that's generated uh, happens at the very end. And there's nothing sort of um, in the middle. And some of the latest developments show that to have the very highest performance, um, you know, when you do that. 
Another thing I, uh, I would point out about this paper is they use a generalized architecture. Uh, so in both papers, uh, I think they use uh, an architecture called Inception V3. And the fascinating thing about this is that this is literally just a generalized architecture that was as used by uh, Google. And I think it was created by Google, especially specifically Inception, to just do image classification. Uh, and they use this thing called pre-training where they essentially you know, give it all these images and without doing any classifications and just let it learn the regularities, you know, in these images uh, and, you know, how it weights, uh, you know, different, the different nodes in the network and such. And that's the really interesting thing about this task is that, you know, again, they just start with this generalized architecture that's built for, you know, real natural language images or natural images versus, uh, you know, these radio uh, versus these, you know, dermatologic images. And that's really, you know, fascinating that you can just take this architecture and that it seems to work. Um, so the next thing I was interested to point out is this thing called T-SNE, T-S-N-E. Uh, and I can't remember what it stands for, but um, this is a wonderful visualization technique. Um, so one thing about these deep learning algorithms is sometimes the um, size of the vectors uh, and how big the representations are get very, very large. And so, you know, in two-dimensional space, right, it's pretty easy to visualize something. You have an X and a Y axis, and you can sort of put points, you know, on the uh, graph and sort of see the spatial relationship between things. And as I mentioned in the past, when we talked about, you know, the curse of dimensionality, when things get really, really high dimensional, it's very hard, you know, to, I mean, you can't visualize, you know, what does 2,000 dimensions look like? So TCD is a really cool way of sort of taking these 2,000 uh, dimensions is sort of, sh uh, you know, pushing things down on the two-dimensional surface. And this dermatologic, uh, this dermatology paper was particularly interesting because, you know, they sort of did this uh, projection. And if you look at that uh, figure, you could see that the different parts and the different colors of this image uh, all converge around you know, different types of pathology. And that's what you want to see, right? If you're doing validation and you're trying to open the box up and to see what these deep learning things are doing, um, you know, and you apply an algorithm like TSNE, you do want to see that it's, you know, that items are clustering where you expect them to cluster. Uh, and it sort of gives you confidence uh, in the system. Another thing I liked was uh, this comparisons to humans for the same task. Uh, and they're nice experiments. I think they took 21 dermatologists uh, had them uh, do the same ratings on a smaller test set and then compare that to the machine learning algorithm. Um, and these are, you know, pretty nice experiments, uh, but not as robust as the next paper. Uh, and that's uh, the retinopathy paper. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But, but, you know, I really wanted to focus on this idea of sort of, you know, doing the human comparison. And I think in almost all cases, um, you know, the system actually does better than the humans do. Uh, and that's something really interesting, you know, to get out of this paper and probably why it got published um, in Nature was because of such the, the good performance, you know, that it was getting. So what are some limitations? Um, they don't consider any clinical data. Um, and this is a very active area of research right now is how do you take clinical data and how do you combine that with uh, imaging data uh, sort of in the same neural network to give you a better outcome at the end? 
Um, and so, and I, and I expect to see, you know, good results and, you know, improved results when we see that because because uh, that's essentially mimicking, you know, what humans do in, in a sense. So you get the background and you sort of, you know, establish a differential based on what you see and, and what you know about the patient. And it's in line with sort of, you know, if you are a Bayesian and, and you think about priors and prior probabilities, you know, if you're reading a textual report about a patient and, you know, it hints at what they may have, that increases the prior uh, probability for certain conditions being true. And so you can see that that information combined with imaging information is going to help you make a better diagnosis. Now, you know, without a model to do that, you know, how do we combine this medical knowledge with clinical data is, is really a, a very big unknown. So, you know, if you're a dermatologist and you see this imaging result, um, and, you know, what should you do? And what if you disagree with, you know, the system and what it's saying? Well, overall, the system, at least with this paper, shows that, you know, it can perform better than, you know, a human can. Um, however, you know, the human has the ability to make judgment calls based on history and other things. And so, you know, really using this thing in context and understanding, you know, when it works and when it's not working when and how you should combine that information with the clinical data is completely unclear. And so the hope is that, you know, if we can build models that combine the two, electronic health record data, you know, with uh, the imaging data, that that sort of combination and the principles around how to combine those in an effective way, you know, become a little bit more clear. And just to circle back as our final, uh, as this question I started off with is, you know, and, and one that we'll cover when we get to the in-person session is, what, what would you do if you were diagnosed, right? And, um, and my personal opinion is that I would love to have this system, you know, making um, the classification for me, um, you know, <laughs> and clearly I'm biased because I believe a lot in computers. However, you know, in every case, you know, the computer is doing better than humans are. Uh, and so if that's the case, then it's likely that, the, that you know, if I have a, a lesion that needs to be uh, classified, I would rely on the system to do it. Um, so great. Well, let's move on. Okay. So the next paper we're going to look at is the diabetic retinopathy paper uh, titled... Development and Validation of a Deep Learning Algorithm for Detection of Diabetic Retinopathy and Retinal Fundus Images. Um, one thing I'll point out is uh, that this is, you know, interesting in the sense that, um, you know, they chose um, a use case that's fairly structured uh, in the sense that, you know, the, the data comes out of these retinopathies, even though they're different cameras and have different settings, um, you know, it's fairly sort of structured in the sense that, you know, you're looking at the back of the retina and that field looks, you know, generally the same. So uh, similarly to last time, uh, let me talk a little bit about things that I like about this paper. The first is that I really like the human comparison. Uh, and I think, you know, when you're thinking about your studies or trying to put a study together, one of the things that you can contribute most is to really do a thorough job uh, in comparison and comparing to humans and doing a good job describing those humans too. And, and that's what I really like about uh, this paper. Um, they spend time talking about integrator reliability, right, to establish how good uh, the classification seemed to be between the raters. Uh, they talk a little bit about the experience of the users uh, of the raters. Um, and they even go as far as having a screening step, right, where they screen the raters, try to find the really good ones, and then give them the really, really good 
you know, classifications. And I find that to be an interesting uh, and a good way to sort of report this type of work, uh, especially when you're doing comparison to humans. Another thing I note is that uh, they have very many different cameras. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, if you can imagine if you have sort of two different cameras, right, if you have a, maybe an Android cam and, and a, you know, a low grade, a, a, one of the early models, the iOS cam, you know, a learning system would have trouble like figuring out, right, because one's at a higher resolution, one's at a low resolution, and you have to reconcile the two. And that's the interesting thing about this paper is that they use many different cameras uh, and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, hey, you know what, we're just going to let the network figure it out uh, and see how it's, and see whether it can learn uh, the, uh, the referable diabetic retinopathy. Uh, similar to the uh, prior study, um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the interesting things about the architecture they're using. Uh, again, they're using a pre-computed architecture that's tree-trained. So, you know, there's nothing special about this architecture in the sense that, you know, it was customized for this task. Uh, and it was really just built, you know, for image detection. And similarly to the previous paper, they used pre-training. So, uh, you know, they set the network's weights using real images in unsupervised fashion to try to sort of get the weights into the ballpark of, you know, where natural images would be. And all the work, uh, you know, almost everyone uses pre-training uh, networks exclusively uh, as, you know, sort of the first step to getting good uh, network models. Um, so it's, not any you know surprising step at all. Um, another interesting thing they, uh, they that they do is that you know they create a, a single network for multiple outputs. Uh, so last week we learned about a little bit about multitask learning, right? So creating a single network can produce multiple outputs, and they sort of do the same thing here. Um, a third uh, point about the network is they use early stopping. So um, these networks are very large and have very many parameters and, and things and knobs that you can turn. And the problem with these knobs is that if you give them enough examples, eventually they will overfit uh, and they will overfit to the training data to the uh, almost to the extent that they actually learn the training data, data specifically, i.e. overfit. So one thing you can do is have a training set and have a validation set and you essentially um, you know, run the algorithm and you're constantly checking the performance of the algorithm against the validation set. And when that validation peaks, you stop the training. Uh, and say do this, so they do this as well. Uh, and this is a very common uh, activity to do uh, and when you're optimizing neural networks. And finally, a fourth thing they do is this uh, ensembling, uh, uh, sort of bringing multiple algorithms together to do a classification. Uh, and this is similar to work that we saw last week uh, in that they you know sort of take multiple models uh, and just you know come up with a way of summing up all the different opinions to get a better, uh, get better performance, and they do this here um, as well. An interesting point, though, is that they actually do this ensembling, uh, which I thought was interesting, uh, and it sort of made me think that maybe they had some algorithms that you know alone didn't do that well, or were sort of you know not as conclusive in terms of comparison to the humans. So they just kept on ensembling and you know putting more and more networks together until they could get a better performance. Uh, but it's really unclear. I don't think in the paper they report the breakdown of the contributions of the different uh, sort of independent neural networks. Um, but that would be an interesting question that that, that I'd like to add, um, that I would certainly ask the authors. Um, so one thing that these folks do do is they do something called a learning curve experiment. 
uh, where they basically sample uh, a certain percentage of images on the x-axis and then they see how performance changes um, as you go along. Um, and this is really uh, interesting uh, because they're trying to essentially establish how much data you need to do this classification. Um, and I think they conclude that you need about 60,000 images uh, for this classification task. Uh, and I just want to say a couple words about this type of experiment and does it generalize to sort of other applications. And my answer to that is, you know, this sample is probably completely dependent on this problem. And as a general rule, you know, if you have 60,000 images, um, you know, he's proven for this problem, right? That's the amount of images that you need. And the number of images is highly dependent on the sort of the, you know, how much signal is there in the image and how much noise is there. And, um, and you know, at 60,000 uh, as well, um, the, he says, you know, the model essentially saturates. Um, and so what does that mean? You know, what does it mean for a model to saturate and sort of not get any better? And does that mean it's learned everything, you know, and that we have the perfect classifier? Um, and the answer is, um, you know, yes, maybe you've learned everything for, you know, this particular task, but, and this particular distribution, right? And that's the key point is that, you know, maybe they, they've essentially saturated for this distribution, right? This sample set. Um, maybe if you go off, you know, you collect more data from other sites or other places, you know, this curve, you know, no longer applies because, you know, maybe the sample data is so different, right? That the model hasn't learned anything about, you know, this new data that it's received. Um, and so then, you know, you may see performance, you know, continue to rise. Um, and then one last interesting point that the authors make in the discussion, which I thought was something to think about, uh, and I've read a little bit of sort of more theoretical articles, you know, about this is, you know, what is the algorithm actually learning? Uh, and as we've seen so far, you know, all these things are kind of black boxes, right? Uh, you kind of throw stuff in. We, you know, we saw T-SNE in, in the previous paper, you know, that would sort of cluster the different um, areas and the different images on the 2D surface so you could see what was going on. But what is really the algorithm learning? Um, you know, and uh, I recall in dermatology, you know, we learned the ABCs, uh, asymmetry, border, color. Uh, D is, uh, what's D? Oh, diameter. Um, and then there's one more, which I can never remember. And, you know, that's how we assess, right? Whether uh, a lesion is um, potentially uh, melanotic. And the interesting thing about these deep learning algorithms is, you know, is it really learning, you know, the ABCs or in this case in retinopathy, is it really looking for, you know, sort of, you know, punctates of, uh, you know, retinal hemorrhage or is it looking for something else? And that's the, you know, fascinating thing and something that we're hoping to learn more as we can open these uh, boxes is, you know, whether the algorithm is actually learning something that maybe as humans, you know, we're not taught or haven't learned. Um, and it'll be fascinating one day to, to have a machine learning model actually drive our understanding of how to make better diagnosis um, because it's able to explain what it's doing. Um, so this is a really interesting point and, and one that I wanted to bring up. Okay, so let's move on to the third paper. So the third paper is ChestXNet, a radiology, radiologist level pneumonia detection on chest X-rays with deep learning. <clears throat> 
So uh, in the same vein, let's talk first a little bit about the uh, algorithm and some of the things that are doing here. So the first uh, is that they're using something called DenseNet. Um, and, you know, it's not at all to get into any of the details, but just to, the, the one reason they really use this uh, particular network is because it's a way of making deep uh, network learning possible. Um, Net, neural networks, especially deep ones, are notorious for being difficult to optimize uh, because there's so many different parameters and, and you have very possibilities that you can get stuck in local minima as you try to optimize uh, these algorithms. And so uh, the DetsNet is sort of a more um, focused way of being able to train these networks and making it possible. Similar to um, the other two networks, they also take advantage of pre-training as well. Uh, and so as you can see, it's just you know, a common step to take when you're doing deep learning. One interesting thing they do is they do downscale the image. Uh, and this is quite interesting. Uh, and they downscale it to get it into the same uh, shape as, um, get it into the same shape as the pre-trained network uh, this uh, from using these ImageNet images. Um, so they didn't actually use the same weights. Uh, so in the previous two examples, uh, retinopathy and dermatology, uh, they used uh, Inception V3, and they used the weights that are published for that. In this case, they actually use DenseNet, and they give it all the ImageNet images. Uh, and ImageNet is a huge data set of sort of uh, publicly available images, sort of, get the, the, the network into that pre-trained state. Um, so, but the interesting thing is they downscale the image uh, to 224 by 224. Um, and, you know, this is really fascinating, right? Because, um, you know, as radiologists, you know, you want more resolution, right? You want greater resolution because you can see finer things at the higher resolution, you know, that you get. Um, so I imagine that, you know, if we went in and looked at some of these negative examples or the false positives or false negatives, we may find that this downscaling was actually part of the culprit for, you know, producing these results. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that they do this, and I just thought I'd point it out. Uh, some Another thing they do is they do this random horizontal flipping. Uh, so they take the images and horizontally flip them. Um, and this is a common uh, technique to sort of increase your sample size to try to get the network to learn more things. So sometimes uh, in other image classification tasks, people will rotate the image a little bit, they'll perturb it, they'll you know, throw in a little noise, and you know just trying to do as much as possible to you know, give the network more information, but not exactly the same information. And then also I'd point out that uh, you know they did build a single model for the binary task of focusing specifically on pneumonia. And then they also, in the later part of the work, they did build a single network uh, with 14 outputs uh, for each of the, the network types. Um, and so again, you know, you see this notion of sort of trying to build a single network to do all, all things, right? Rather than building 14 networks, right? And each network is doing its own thing. Um, and uh, yeah, and the idea is that, you know, you can have one class, you know, because it's getting classified, it can learn about things, you know, related to that task, um, you know, rather than, you know, doing a binary yes, no, uh, where, you know, maybe if you had things related to that yes, um, you know, it, it doesn't, the, the network just, it's not that it isn't able to learn, but it essentially thinks that stuff is noise, right? Uh, and so that, but however, if you do one single network and with 
um, all these outputs, right? If things are fairly similar, like pneumonia and consolidation, you know, like hopefully those will sort of be close together, right, in the classification space, and you'll see that. Uh, and the other technology interesting they use uh, thing they use here is something called class activation mappings. Uh, and so they essentially take the last layer of the network right before you do the classification and they sort of sum up the weight with the representation of that image and then sort of expand it back again to the actual image. And so that sort of explains all those heat maps that you see. Uh, and so this is a pretty simple algorithm uh, to use, but it's really cool to see those heat maps and really see what the network and where the network is making its determination of whether it thinks this person has pneumonia or some of the other pathologies. Okay, so that kind of ends that third paper. Uh, so let's move on to the questions for the week. Uh, there are quite a few questions, and uh, thank you, uh, Nadja and uh, uh, Aristu, for uh, sending in your questions, and really very thoughtful, and I really appreciate it. Um, so one question, uh, we'll start with the dermatology paper, was why is the accuracy so low for both CNNs and dermatologists? Um, and I think this is really the nature of the problem. Um, you know, by looking at the images, you know, my sense is that, oh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty hard to do this. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's just a really hard problem. Uh, and, you know, as magical as we hope, you know, these deep learning systems are and as much as they can learn things, you know, that maybe humans can't see, you know, in general, they're not going to be so magical that they're going to, you know, outperform the best humans by a lot. Uh, right. So I think it's just a really hard problem uh, and sort of leave it at that. Uh, there's a question from uh, the retinopathy paper. Uh, says, I'm surprised at the discussion and conclusion. I thought the authors would suggest in the, to, in the future enable primary care physicians to screen diabetic patients for retinopathy. Instead, they conclude because this was feasible, it could be done for medical imaging. Uh, and yes, I agree. It's certainly a huge stretch uh, to just say, hey, look, you know, if this works on this one problem, then you know, it can work on all other, all other problems too. And maybe they're, you know, sort of inserting a little bit of their own bias about uh, the field uh, of deep learning and, and where things are going and, and how good these algorithms are becoming. Um, and I think when this paper published, there have already been a couple success stories of um, people doing this in medical imaging. Um, and so it was probably a little bit of a biased comment, but I agree with you, you know, taking the study in isolation and it's really hard to make that leap that this could be better, you know, that because you could do it here, that you could do it in, in medical imaging. You know, however, there are a lot of features that are, you know, somewhat the same. Uh, number one is that, you know, the images are fairly structured, right? So in, in retinopathy, you know, you're just looking at the back of the retina, right? And, and every field, every image looks like that. So the variation is quite small. Um, and that's similar to sort of a chest X-ray, right, or um, or uh, uh, other imaging where you know the 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 world of what you see is very very constrained. Um, and so one thing that I didn't talk about, uh, which I'll just mention here, is that you know in all the cases that we saw, they're using this Inception V3 algorithm, um, and I think there's a picture of it in the uh, first in the uh, dermatology paper. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that it's a really deep and complicated network. And I bet you that if, you know, once we start getting more experience doing some medical imaging, that you're not going to need as networks that are as deep or as complicated because most of the data is way more structured than natural images are. And you can exploit that structure in building simpler networks and networks that aren't as deep. But, you know, we'll have to see what happens when that happens. 
another question was, why are they concluding that care could be improved compared to current ophthalmologic exam when the algorithm seems to not be doing much better than ophthalmologists? Uh, and I, I agree uh, with you uh, that, yes, the system uh, isn't better uh, than, you know, is about on par, right, with some of the ophthalmologists. Um, and how could care be improved? Well, I mean, I think there's some other avenues too, right, just beyond the classification. Um, one would be, uh, you know, that it could do it very quickly, uh, right? I mean, there's it literally doesn't really have to inspect the image. It could just sort of, you know, flash it and within seconds, right, tell you what uh, whether you should refer it or not. Um, and number two is, you know, these computers, as we know, are, you know, completely invariant to, you know, getting tired. Um, so there's no fatigue. There's nothing, right? It just makes a classification and it's done. Um, so, you know, there have been no studies yet that I know of sort of systematically comparing, you know, humans uh, to these uh, computers in a sort of a real world environment. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, right? And whether these type of systems uh, can do better. Um, and also, as I mentioned in the previous, is that, you know, how do you know when you are better, right, as the ophthalmologist? And when should you rely on the machine and when should you do it, you know, yourself? And, you know, it's going to be an interesting challenge that we're going to come up with because, you know, with the machines, you know, you can sort of have a sort of a semi-quantitative way of, of measuring how good, you know, the machine is, right? We look at sensitivities and specificities. And we could do the same thing for humans, too. Give them have them learn sensitivity and specificities, but you know, does every physician do that? Right? Do we know our performances on you know every classification task? And I think the answer is no. Uh, and that's part of the the goal of the learning healthcare system, right? Is that we can sort of get the kind of feedback that we get and have that feedback and helping us sort of do better in the future. So yeah, we're gonna see you know how this plays out. So the last question is. Um, about ChessXNet uh, regarding the 121 layers of this net, dense network. Uh, I think this dense net, uh, that's just the uh, recommended layers uh, that is suggested. Uh, so they're just using the default values uh, for uh, this particular network. So let's move on to the next set of questions uh, by uh, Aris2. Uh, so there is, uh, in ChessXNet, uh, there is a question about uh, the authors conclude that their deep learning methods perform like or better uh, then radiologists detect in the moaning category. However, in their image categories, they also have consolidation and infiltration. These two categories are often the actual imaging signs of pneumonia. This is a fundamental problem. How is this mixing related or some or, or same categories affect the results? This is a great question. Um, so when people actually look at these images uh, and how chest X-ray net uh, 14 was created, um, you know, they were just using natural language processing. Uh, and there's been a lot of concern about the quality of this actual data uh, and, and, and the labels themselves. Um, and so I think part of the reason why we're seeing some of the lower performances you know, of this task uh, is because of that, right? It's because of the, the poor labeling. Um, so how does this end up affecting the results? Um, so certainly if you have the wrong label, right, you're going to get a, sort of a ding against you if you're calculating accuracy or, or AEC. Um, however, uh, in the sense that you would hope that when you are running this algorithm, things that are similar will sort of cluster and group together. And that's what I would expect to see is things like consolidation and infiltration 
and pneumonia will sort of cluster together, you know, as a group. And so, you know, even though the labels are wrong, right, the model can still learn things about consolidation and infiltration, you know, in pneumonia. Um, but ultimately, as I said, the biggest problem is that even if you, you know, do those, have those incorrect classifications, we're actually calculating the final metric, you know, it's going to be wrong. Um, so it may be, and that's just a great experiment to do, right, is to try to improve the, the labels and try to improve the classifications and rebuild the models and see what the real true performance is, you know, of these systems. Um, so that's one way you could do it. The other way is you could just turn this on prospectively um, and let us just label things, you know, for the physicians. Uh, and then you just see how it functions, right? And if it's doing well, you know, it's just learn those concepts, but maybe not exactly what they are. Um, you know, you would hope that these end up being sort of false positives. Um, so infiltration and consolidation would get sort of high scores above a given threshold because these things out, output probabilities. Um, and even though the classification isn't right there, it sort of gets a high score. Um, and so uh, it ends up thinking, right, that the person has pneumonia. Um, so then the related question is, if the categories are mixed together, can the results be trusted and can the network be utilized? And the answer is, um, I think so. Uh, but, you know, we really have to have perspective tests or, you know, some retrospective sensitivity analysis to prove that out. Uh, so on the retinopathy uh, um, uh, paper, uh, the question was, how many deep neural networks for imaging diagnosis have particular image input requirements? Uh, how does this affect the performance of the network and classification? Uh, and so in this case, I think they took all the networks as is. Uh, they all took all the images as is, uh, regardless of where it came from or what the image requirements were. And they just sort of built, you know, one system, uh, you know, to learn from all of this. Um, and so that's really cool to be able to do. And, and I think if you get enough images, right, of a particular type, uh, the network should learn, uh, you know, the, the intricacies of, you know, of that one uh, system. Now, if you have a huge data set where, you know, there's like 95% or one thing or one system and a 5% of the other, well, you know, you may wonder the problems, right? And I think that's an open air of research. And this is a great question to ask, right, is what would happen if you segment out the, the, the experiments and, and the data into, you know, these different um, uh, imaging, uh, based on imaging characteristics? And, you know, do you get actually better performance in some of the, you know, say, higher high resolution ones than otherwise? The next question from the retinopathy paper is varied wild type images cannot be used and only curated images can be fed through the network. Then how are deep learning methods going to be utilized in real case scenarios? Well, and I think that's the promise, uh, right? Is that yeah, you sort of, the goal is to be as hands-off as possible as you just give it images, right? And let it build the network itself. Um, and the extent that this is a real effect, right? It's gonna have to be figured out. Um, and so we don't know. Uh, you know, how much noise uh, you can sustain, you know, before you start having, uh, uh, before your classification um, uh, decreases. Uh, in their learning curve paper, you know, they sort of show that, you know, up to 60,000 images, right, you could still do well. However, what they did not show, or right, up to 60,000 images, you know, you could still do well. Now, an interesting thing to do would be to perturb the classifications uh, and sort of, and see you know, what the effect of that is and how bad, right, can you actually do in terms of classification and still get a good model. And I think, you know, we'll be sort of pseudo surprised in that, you know, you could be pretty not that great uh, as my hypothesis and still, you know, generate uh, models that are good and that, that will perform well.
So the next question is from the dermatology paper um, asking why the authors use non-fold cross-validation. And I have no idea. Um, you know, maybe the training set and the classifications used divided by nine, and so they wanted an even split within each of the uh, cross-validation folds. Um, typical is tenfold. Uh, sometimes people do uh, leave one out. Um, so a related question, though, is how arbitrary is the number of K-fold uh, validation, and does it affect fitting and overfitting? Um, and so let me answer that uh, in a few ways. The first I'd say is that um, if you don't have a lot of positive examples, uh, probably doing a leave one out cross validation is best, right? Where you just train on, if you have 100 training uh, uh, or 100 examples, you train on 99 and test on the one. And the idea there is that, you know, you want to try to maximize the number of positive examples that you have in your training set, right? So that you can try to find the signal uh, rather than splitting it up amongst, you know, 10 folds or nine folds or whatever the folds are. Um, so that's sort of one sort of, reasoning that can drive how many folds you choose. Um, if you have a lot of data, um, you know, people just do single splits, right? They just do any 80-20 splits or 70-30 splits. And it's probably okay because, uh, you know, you have enough sample where whatever you're learning at 30% is probably generalizable, um, you know, from the 70%. Um, and, you know, if you have, uh, and also, you know, if you go to more folds, you're actually sort of increasing the amount of data that you have for training. Um, so at any time that you're sample constrained in some ways, you know, it's it's good to try to go up and folds a little bit more. Um, however, you do want to be careful of the computational uh, uh, energy that you have and the power that you have. So if you do 100-fold you know, cross-validation, you know, it's 100 experiments you have to run and 100 optimizations you have to do. And that can take a really, really long time. Um, and so it's important to recall that why do we do K4 validation? Because we're thinking about the future. We're trying to make estimates about the future. Uh, so it's always nice to find a trade-off between sort of the computational power that you need to do that estimate, uh, the sample size you need to have so that way uh, of the positive examples, so that way you have sufficient positives in the training set to learn a model. Um, and yeah, so those are some rules of thumbs when I think about uh, K4 cross-validation. And the final question was, how does using pre-trained networks help in deep uh, convolutional neural network classification? Um, and the answer there is that, you know, they're extremely helpful. Um, and the reason is, is that, you know, as I said, these networks are pretty hard to train uh, and they're very deep and they can sometimes be very wide. And the goal is to get them into a, sort of a ready state, right? So um, initially when they're built, they randomize all of the values to sort of random weights and then they just feed it images right and as they fit in images it sort of adjusts the weight slowly um and so you can imagine in the space you know even if you have like you know say a 16 by 16 image right um there are only so many representations uh you know in each say each one is represented by 256 bits um so, you know, if you take the realm of all 16 by 16 pixels, uh, images and send it to it, right, the space of all possibilities is actually, you know, fairly low, at least ones that actually look like something, you know, to us. And so the distribution, if you think about all the possible instantiations of uh, 256 colors and a 16 by 16 image, right, the ones that we'd be interested in are actually a fairly small subset, you know, of that entire space. And that's essentially what the pre-trained networks allow the system to do, is allow these networks to learn at least an initial example of where the weights are and what the representations are uh, that are important in sort of the, all the spaces of all possibilities. 
And so because of that, when you pre-train a model, you know, it's sort of ready to accept uh, what it expects. And then when you actually do a real task, right, it can use those to improve the performance. Now, that having been said, you know, the examples we saw built pre-trained using ImageNet, uh, so just using these, you know, sort of real-world images. If you did it just on radiology images, and I'm sure the studies are out there and, and I haven't, you know, read them, but I'm sure that you get much better improvement. Uh, you get an improvement in, in performance, and also you don't need as much sample, uh, you know, possibly you don't need as much sample in the classification task uh, to do well. Okay, so that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for your time. Uh, looking forward to next week. Uh, let me see what we're covering. Uh, yes, so next week we're going to be covering uh, some natural language processing systems and talking about the role of NLP uh, in radiology and how people are using machine learning and, uh, yeah, deep learning for that. So thank you, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.